Hello friends, and thank you for joining me in this rather brief study of Paul's letter to the Romans. Today we will give a short introduction into the nature and contents of the letter, and then over the next four weeks we'll look primarily at the second half of the letter and what it has to do with the main themes that we discover in today's talk. Now, Romans is what scholars call one of the undisputed Pauline letters. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that when we look at the entire Pauline corpus, which is everything from 1st and 2nd Corinthians to 1st and 2nd Timothy, scholars feel like there are some letters that we know without a doubt had the actual person of Paul as one of its authors. However, they're not always sure that some of the letters were exactly from Paul or maybe were some from some of Paul's followers or ministry team that were writing in his name. Now, this doesn't cause us any kind of an alarm because even in those undisputed Pauline letters, you know, the ones that scholars say are absolutely from Paul, even those were always sent by not just Paul, but by Paul's team. Some of the letters say from Paul and Timothy. Some say from Paul and all of the brothers and sisters that are with him. Some say from Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. And so we know that Paul is really uh, a name that is definitely Paul, but that is also a community of ministers that travels around and helps churches get off of the ground and get going. And so Romans is one of the undisputed Pauline letters that we know without a doubt that it was actually written by Paul. And what's interesting is it's the only one of Paul's letters, Paul's undisputed letters, not to have a co-writer. There is no one he includes in who is sending the letter. Now at the end of it in chapter 16, we know that Tertius says, I'm the one actually writing the letter. And so this might be a secretary or what they called an amanuensis who's transcribing the letter for Paul and making sure it gets sent to where it needs to be. Another one of the interesting things that makes Romans so unique is that it is the only of Paul's undisputed letters to not be occasional. Now, what does that mean? It means that all of Paul's other letters were written addressing specific situations in the church that Paul had been informed of. And the reason that this doesn't seem to be occasional is because it's also the only of Paul's undisputed letters written to a congregation with whom Paul had no prior history. Paul, before he was sent to Rome to stand trial before Caesar, had never been to Rome. Paul had not started the church in Rome. Paul had never visited the church in Rome. Now, all of the other letters, Paul's letters to the Corinthians, came after Paul had already established an in-person relationship with the Corinthian church. Paul's letter to the Galatians came after Paul had been there in person establishing relationships. Romans is a letter to, to a church that Paul has never met before in person. Not only that, Paul is writing to them because he doesn't believe Rome to be his last place. In fact, he says he wants to stop there on his way to Spain. His goal is to take the gospel to the westernmost part of the Roman Empire. And 
we know this to be true, it is one of the last of Paul's letters. In fact, some people think it's the very latest one because it's on his way to Rome that he's writing this with Rome in view. And we know that Paul didn't actually, it seems, although we have no record of Paul's actual execution, it does not seem that Paul actually left Rome, but rather died there. So what is it? Already we have seen how many interesting and unique features Romans has that make it very distinctive from all of the other Pauline letters. But let's get a sense of what's happening in Rome. Now, Romans dates to from the mid to late 50s of the first century. Um, many scholars say right around 57. So what had been happening in Rome that might provide some details as to why and how Paul's writing would land when it got there to Rome. What would people be hearing? Well, according to historians, the Emperor Claudius, who reigned from 41 to 54 of that first century, in 41, when he took the throne, Claudius limited Jewish gatherings and put all kinds of bans on how Jews could gather in synagogues and in public. Uh, Claudius then, probably sometime around 49, expelled the Jews from Rome altogether, like they were kicked out. And in fact, we have uh, an acknowledgement about this in Acts chapter 18, where uh, the writer of Acts said that Priscilla and Aquila were Jews from Rome and they had been expelled from Rome. They had been kicked out. Now, one of the writings of the uh, historian Suetonius um, states that since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of someone named Crestus, the Emperor Claudius expelled all Jews from Rome. Now, First of all, who is this Crestus? We don't know. There are no other referrals to such a person. This leads biblical scholars to wonder if what they were meaning was Christos, which is Christ, the name of Jesus, or the title of Jesus, we might say. Now, what's interesting that you might note is that it doesn't say Christians made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. Jews. This is right at the time where the gospel is just opening to Gentile congregations. Remember, that's Paul's big claim to fame, that he is the apostle to the Gentiles. And so in synagogues and in these local churches, the first people to ever be Christians were Jews. And so at this time in the Roman Empire, Christians aren't seen as something separate from being Jewish. Rather, it's seen as sort of a sect of Judaism. And so they're noticing that there's something about Jews that make a disturbance or that live differently because of somebody named Crestus or maybe Christos. We don't know, but it seems possible that the Jews received persecution because of this. So there's something about this Jewish-Christian relationship that is causing the Jews to undergo this kind of persecution. And so that is also going to be something that's going to be very helpful for us to consider as we think about how Paul classifies things in his letter to the Romans and how he, um, the types of urging that he does for the church. 
So what's the main thrust of Romans? Well, you guessed it. Jews and Gentiles must be part of the church equally. Otherwise, in Paul's argument, God is only the God of one people instead of all people. And so this notion that it requ the church requires both the Jew and the Gentile is an important theological concept. And neither one of those is any better. Like certainly they are different, but neither is in, in any um, preferable standing. In fact, Paul argues throughout the letter that since all people are equally sinful, God can be equally merciful to all people, Jews and Gentiles. So at the very beginning of Romans, he sets up that, yes, Gentiles have been idolaters and sinful. However, um, Jews were given the law, and all that did was sort of help them notice when and how much they sin. And so no one can claim being sinless, and no one can claim having it all together. However, the good news is, the sort of third point that Paul makes in Romans is that God has always had a plan to bring all people together. In fact, the culmination of Paul's argument occurs in chapters 9 through 11, where he talks about the people of God as like this tree. And the Jews were this initial tree. They were the, the OG tree. And what God has done has grafted in, like a master gardener, has grafted in Gentile people to become part of this tree. And so God's family is expanding, and this was always God's plan. That God, um, the Jews had been unfaithful before, that's why the prophets had been calling them back, and God referred back in Hosea, I will call those who are acting like not my people to be my people. And now here, in Romans, Paul uses that same scripture in, in his argument in chapters 9 through 11 to say, and God is doing that even with the Gentiles, the people who were not God's people or who were not called God's people are being brought into God's people. And this has always been the plan. We're just now actually getting to see it come to fruition. And then the fourth part of Paul's main argument in Romans is that by that same token, of God bringing in the Gentiles who previously had not been part of what was going on, the Jews who now refuse to participate in this Jesus movement have become like the Gentiles were before, which means they will also be the ones that God welcomes in. Regardless of what has happened before, Paul has this kind of faith that if you are on the outside, God is going to be faithful to bring you in, just like the Gentiles have been brought in. And so if you find yourself now on the outside, there's no cause for despair. You are the one that God is actively seeking and that God promises that if you don't feel like you are God's people, God will nonetheless call you his people and welcome you in. So these um, sort of four basic points are going to be the bedrock, the things that we can um, work with in order to look at the rest of the things and some of the, um, the sort of sub-arguments that Paul makes. Like for next week, 
Uh, we'll be talking about what it means to be set free from sin. And these four pillars that we talked about today will be the foundation of how that argument will be made. So I hope to see you next week again and join me as we continue to look into Paul's letter to the Romans. Thank you.